Good morning, everyone. My name's Leah, and I have the privilege of serving in kids' ministry and as an intern. Uh, today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus 1, 1 through 9 from the NIV. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is God's word. Thank you, Leah. Today we begin a new series through the New Testament book of Titus in a series we're calling A Faithful Presence, asking what it means to be a faithful presence for Christ in this cultural moment. And this letter, as we will see over the next few months from now until Easter, explores that in three different areas. What does it mean to be faithful in our homes, whether you're single, married, have kids or not? What does it mean to be a faithful presence in the church? And finally, what does it mean to be a faithful presence in the world? We wanna pray now, not only for our time together today, but for this whole season that we would be transformed, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged. And for those of you who are new, you're exploring Christian faith, we love you, we're so glad you're here. You're wondering like, what is life all about? We hope and our prayer is that you would meet Jesus and understand him to be the hope of this world as well as for your own life. So let's pray together, let's ask the Holy Spirit to move. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. And as a result, you transform us by your grace into faithful people. Lord, I pray that as we begin this journey today that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would change us. You know the areas in our own lives that need to be addressed, and so we're asking that your Holy Spirit would speak prophetically and powerfully to us in the areas where we need instruction and guidance on how to live in the world right now. We pray that you would lead us. And for those here who do not yet know you or for those joining us online, we pray that they would come to understand all that Jesus Christ has done for them, that they would even today believe and be saved. Spirit of God, would you be our teacher? Change us for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, we've all just been experiencing what it's like to live through some physical storms. What does it mean to live within a cultural 
storm. Just like the pressure of opposing winds creates a weather storm, a clash of ideas and values are what create a cultural storm. Competing visions for how we should live and and what we should believe, we find ourselves being pushed and pulled in different directions. This last week, my brother and I, we took a road trip. We'd been planning it for some time uh, up to the Bay Area of California. Uh, and we couldn't have picked a worse week to drive. It was like absolutely terrible. I'm like the worst day of rain, driving on the grapevine. But during that time, I was, I was aware, I was alert, I was calling to mind driving lessons that I learned over 20 years ago, watching like cars crash from the side. And I'm like, okay, I do this. I don't want to steer that too. Okay, brake, yep, lights, yep, wipers, yep. Oh, I'm, I'm going through the, the, you know, the drives on there. I'm like, I, I've got it. I'm aware, I'm alert, I'm navigating the storm. And as I was doing that, so focused, my back is tense like the whole time, it reminded me of what we're about to learn in Titus. We are in the midst of a cultural storm and we need to know how to navigate. We need to call to mind the lessons. If if you've been around the church for a long time, following Jesus for a long time, you need to be reminded of certain lessons. We need to be alert and aware because around us, there are disagreements about ethics, about morals, about justice, politics, sexuality, identity, and spirituality that create the pressure that we experience each and every day. And the question is, how do we steer in the storm? Well, the Bible tells us that Christ is the world's savior and that trusting in him and following him is alone how we learn to steer safely. And this is the lesson that Titus learned. Titus had become a Christian in the first century through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter. And Titus subsequently found himself leading a church community in a very polarized culture. The fourth largest island in the Mediterranean, the island of Crete, was home to various cities and actually played a significant role in creating and spreading culture throughout the ancient world. When it was conquered by Rome, it was made into a province. Now, Crete had a mixture of citizens, predominantly pagan, yes, but with a strong Jewish community living within. And so this mix of people brought about a mix of ideas about how people should live. Paul the Apostle, in writing to Titus, knew that there were two major views clashing with the truth of Jesus that created the pressure of the storm he was facing. And I think you'll notice that they are very similar to the storm that we are facing. On the one hand, there was the pressure from religious people who downplayed Christ. Paul addresses this in verse 10 of the first chapter. He says, For there are many 
rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. So this group of people putting on pressure the church came from a Jewish background, acknowledged that yes, perhaps Jesus was the Messiah, but in order to truly be saved, you need to rely upon your own moral effort and keep the law. We could call them a Jesus plus your works religion. Jesus plus your works equals salvation. Paul says this is wrong. So here's Titus and the early believers. On the one hand, they're facing religious pressure from a group that was downplaying Christ. But then, on the other hand, there was the pagan pressure which ignored Christ. See, the Cretans believed that they were the original Greeks. You know how all of us, we like to be the original, like, oh, I heard that album before it was ever even recorded. Like, I knew all about it. I wore that. I did that first. Like, the Cretans were like, we were the original Greeks. They claimed that the Olympian gods were actually men and women from Crete who were elevated to the status of deities because of the good deeds that they did for mankind. However, they were also famously greedy and false. And so Paul has some words about them in verse 12. Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. <gasps> Paul, you shouldn't talk like that. Well, he did. So on the one hand, there's the pressure of religious people downplaying Christ. And on the other hand, the pressure of the pagans who are ignoring Christ. And though on the surface, it might look different in the year 2023, I assure you, we are facing the same pressures today. There are those who think that they can save themselves through their own moral effort and religiosity, and there are those who do not think they need any saving at all. Those are the fundamental pressures that we feel today, not only in our cities, but even in our own souls. This is a historic problem. We're always going to be caught between these two pressures, the religious and the irreligious, the legalists and the lawless. These are the pressures we feel today, but there's nothing new. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, spoke of these two errors in this way. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two errors. You will hear on a daily basis in, our, in, in the West, in North America, the pressure from religious people who say, yeah, 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 Jesus, whatever, but what you really gotta do is follow these rules and then you can change yourself. The legalist. And then you have the lawless. Like, we don't need to obey any law. The only law I need to follow is the law within my own heart and my own emotions and my own affections. These are the two pressures that we face on a daily basis that create the storm that we are living in. And like many of the believers on the island of Crete, we often find ourselves on the verge of giving in to the pressure. Paul wants to make sure the truth is heard. 
And Titus is his man on the ground. In verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete to set things in order. And what we'll notice throughout our series, and what I want us to pay attention to, is that Paul does not tell Titus to go outside of the culture, nor does he tell him to become just like the culture, but rather to be a faithful presence within the culture. And we are reading over his shoulder. For though this letter is written to Titus, it is recorded for us, for the whole church. And these introductory verses, we're only going to look at four verses this morning, they give us several principles for being a faithful presence for Christ in a cultural storm. And the first is this. If you want to be a faithful presence, you must know who you are, according to the Bible. Paul wastes no time in his opening. He makes very clear to us how he views himself, and in doing so, teaches us how we should view ourselves. He opens in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect. In using the term servant of God, Paul actually places himself in a long line of servants who spoke on behalf of God. In the Old Testament, you would often find the phrase used of the prophets, servant of God. Which is interesting because earlier in Paul's life, before he was a Christian, he was a very religious man. He had always seen himself as a servant, but his service was designed to establish his own position, his own status, and his own righteousness before God and others. And in this proud pursuit, he had actually become an enemy of the very message he would later preach, the message of the gospel. He had denied earlier in his life his need for Jesus. He even threatened the early church and participated in murderous acts against them. But everything changed on the day that he met Jesus. And he stopped trying to be his own savior and accepted Jesus as his savior. And now not only was he forgiven, but he's called a servant of God and an apostle for God's work in the world. Now, I just want us to pause for a moment on that. That God would redeem us and use us for his purposes is absolutely astounding. And some of us have forgotten how radical that is. As I said this past week, my brother and I, we had this trip planned for a long time. We'd gone up to the, to the Bay Area because my brother and I have not been back together since my dad died over 20 years ago. We hadn't even been back to the grave. And so we had this trip planned together. We do this road trip. And as we did, and we drove around the area in which we grew up, my brother and I were not Christians in our younger years. And basically the whole time we were driving around saying, I should have died there. Definitely should have died there. You should have died there. Should have died there. And we were like tripping out in the car. Like my brother and I were like, dude, I'm glad you're not physically dead. And I'm glad you're spiritually alive. We're like, how crazy is this? My brother were like, we were horrible. 
And Jesus not only saved us, but he called us into ministry right before my father died. And we're both serving Jesus today. And I just, I cannot believe this. It's like insane. If you would have told me like, oh, you're gonna be a servant of God in the church, I'd be like, stop your lying. I would never have believed you. It's unreal. Friends, you are not only forgiven, clean slate. You are accepted by God and you are commissioned for his purpose in the world. If you're not amazed by that, you need a spiritual awakening. It is remarkable. And I don't think Paul ever got over it. God will not only forgive a person, he will then empower them and use them. And that's why Paul proudly says, I am a servant belonging to God. He moved from serving himself to serving the Lord, which is what happens when a person is converted. We used to serve sin, but having been rescued, I now serve the Lord. My question for you this morning is can you fill your name in that line? Can you call yourself a servant of God? For some of us, this issue needs to be settled. You've trusted in Christ, you know him as your savior, but maybe you're not living for him as his servant. Maybe for some of us, you, you know, like, well, today I'm a servant of God, but tomorrow, you know, I want to keep my options open. Okay, so I want to serve myself or s- serve some other cause. Maybe Wednesday, community group. Yep, serving the Lord Thursday. Meh. I address this because one of the reasons that we are so easily swayed in the cultural storm of pressure and opinions and influences is because this matter has not been settled in your heart. Brothers and sisters, can we say today, I'm a servant of God. God, here I am, send me, use me. Regardless of how I might be feeling in, in this particular moment or how things are going, at the end of the day, I know that you have saved me, you have redeemed me, my life is no longer my own, I am your servant. And if we declare that, we must live like it. Because before, in the Christian life, before there is ever public service, there must be private devotion. This willingness to say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm your servant. Can we say that today, friends? Or have we been keeping our options open? Wanting to serve ourselves or serve something lesser than Christ? If you've trusted in Jesus, you need to remember who you are. You are the redeemed of God. You are the children of God. And therefore, you are the servants of God. Look, if I want to be a faithful presence, it starts there. It starts, I got to remember who I am. Man, I was lost and now I'm found. I was heading towards death and now I'm alive in Christ. I was doing nothing with my life and now I'm on mission for Christ. This is who you are. It is your identity. It is your birthright in Jesus Christ. We must never forget it. And if it means writing on a post-it note, putting an alert reminder on your phone saying, you are a servant of the most high, then so be it because this is who we are. If you refuse that, then your life will be a stumbling block to the work, both in the church and outside of the church, because there is work to be done. Paul not only says, I'm a servant of God, but an apostle, which means a sent one or a commissioned one. That's what the word apostle means. 
He understands his role is to tell everyone about this marvelous God and that they do not need to qualify themselves before God, but rather they are saved by grace. And so he says, I'm an apostle sent to further the faith of God's elect. We are on a mission together as a community. Now, what will that look like? Well, to be a faithful presence, first, you need to know who you are. That by faith in Jesus, you are adopted, accepted, forgiven, and commissioned. But secondly, you need to know how to live. You need to know who you are, that you're in Christ, but you also need to know how to live for Christ. See, behavior is always the expression of belief. What you really believe determines how you behave. Or to put it another way, how you behave shows to everyone around you what you really believe. So this new identity, this new understanding of, okay, I'm in Christ, I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm a servant of God. Well, the test of that is, well, how do I live? And so notice Paul's language at the end of verse one. To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, that leads to what? Godliness. Now, there's a couple of key words in this passage to note. He includes faith and knowledge, which, yes, they do go together. In our modern culture, oftentimes people will think that faith and knowledge are opposites, that they are enemies, because people often refer to faith as being blind faith. Oh, God just asks me to, you know, believe the Bible on blind faith. Doesn't give me any evidence. It just says, believe it. I'm not giving you anything. Just believe it. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. We believe in a God who has revealed himself in time and in history through word and through deed, ultimately through his son. He has acted, Jesus Christ, literally, physically, lived, died, and rose again. We believe in a God who has moved and and acted, and we are called to faith in what he has done. Faith and knowledge are not enemies. They are friends. The two go hand in hand. Far from being incompatible, they are inseparable. But to embrace that truth is also to embrace the change that it brings. This knowledge of the faith should result in visible transformation. And he refers to that transformation here as godliness. Godliness is the test of authenticity. To be a faithful presence in this cultural moment, means the pursuit of godliness in the way that we live our lives. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word godliness or or godly. For some of you, you're like, doesn't that mean an angry religious person? Like, oh, they're so godly. Look how red their face is. They're so angry. (laughs) Oh man, they're real. I, I, I don't have as many anger issues, so I don't know if I could ever be godly. Or in the church, some people might hear godly as though that's like an elite tier of Christian. You're like, okay, most of us are mediocre, but they're godly. Like they're super elite. I could never be godly like her or or like him. But think about how Paul uses the word and what it actually means. Because what's interesting to me is that the word godly was a word that was actually 
commonly used in the ancient world, in the Greek and Roman culture. Godliness simply meant that you were ordering your life in line with what you believed. So if you believed in the Greek and pagan myths and you went and you made your sacrifices and you paid tribute, then you would be a godly person. It was that your behavior lined up in your, to your beliefs. So people would use the word often, oh, you're godly. You're actually doing the routine. You're, you're doing the, the rituals. And then Paul actually, he takes this word and he says, no, we believe in the true and living God. And so therefore to be godly is to order your life around him. That your behavior would reflect his character. That we would become like what we worship. Now that's important because godliness is not some abstract principle that people make up according to their own opinions. Nor is godliness an unattainable goal of sinless perfection. Notice the line in verse 1 denotes a process. It leads you to godliness. Godliness is something that we grow in. We're never going to perfect it this side of eternity. But there is a growth process. There should be signs of life. It's about reflecting the God who loves you to those around you. And it's so practical. Which is why the book of Titus is a very practical book the way you treat one another, the way that you speak to one another, the way that you engage in society is all to be a reflection of God's character. That's godliness. Think about the Ten Commandments. The commandments given by God to his people, showing them what to do and what not to do. And you'll find commandments like, you should not lie. Well, why shouldn't we lie? Because God doesn't lie. You should not steal. Why shouldn't we steal? Oh, because God's not a thief. See, the Ten Commandments are actually like a reflection of God's identity. Don't lie because I don't lie. Don't steal because I don't steal. Don't be unfaithful because I am not unfaithful. So the way in which we live in the world is, is saying, hey, I'm not going to steal from you because I worship a God who doesn't steal. Hey, I'm not going to lie to you because I worship a God who, who doesn't lie. And when we see those evidences of growth, that is godliness. So far from making godliness optional as if it was only for supercharged Christians, it makes it essential. It is a willingness to have your life shaped by the will and the very character of God. And that is why, friends, there is a warning here. That's why ungodliness is a problem ungodliness at its core is actually hypocrisy. And Paul addresses this issue in his letter to Titus. In verse 16, he says, speaking of a certain group of people, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. There were people in Titus's time who were claiming to know God. Yes, I know the risen Lord Jesus, but the way they were living sent a contradictory message. Or to use Paul's words, their works denied him. To put it very simply, if you preach a life-changing message, are you modeling a changed life? 
if we claim to have like, hey, we're the church, hey, we've got a life-changing message and people look at us and like, yeah, I see zero change in your life. That's a problem. And it is often a problem in the church where we have this contradictory message. We, we say one thing and yet we live in another. I'm not talking about when we screw up, when we fail, when we stumble, when we falter. For when we do, we're told that we confess our sins, we repent, which means to turn away from and to turn towards Christ, and we are renewed, we are forgiven. Even our repentance becomes a model to the world of a changed life. Because in my previous life before Christ, I did not repent. But one of the great evidences of a changed life is repentance. So here's the question for us. Are we living in such a way that there is a question mark over our lives where we claim to believe something but our behavior contradicts it? To use a silly analogy, imagine someone you know is like, I am a vegan, proudly. Like it's on their you know, internet bio, like I am a vegan and every time you go out, they're like, I want meat and I want it raw. You're like, oh, like I just, I just noticed on your thing, it's like vegan, like a little plant emoji. And you're like, wow, and you're like, so, you know, just like, give me the meat, give it to me so raw, I'll ride the rest home. Like just, you know, you're like, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> this is clearly a contradiction and mess. Every time I see you eat, you're engaging in this. Like something's not right here. And sadly, friends, that happens often in the church. It's like, follower of Jesus. And yet the way in which we treat people consistently over time is a total contradiction of the way of Jesus. Now, I'm not gonna get into the once saved, always saved, can a person lose our salvation? That's a topic for another time. But let me just say this. I don't want there to be a question mark over my life. I don't want to question. I, look, we could have a theological debate, but all, the simple question for me day in, day out is, am I leaving a question mark for my family and my friends and all the people around me, or is there evidence of a changed life? I wonder if for some of us here in the room, there may be a question mark that's developed over time. Because God loves you, it's a, it's a matter that he wants to address in your life. And the way in which he does is by reminding you who you are and teaching you how you are to live. And that is in direct response to who he is and what he has done. What are the areas of growth that God wants to address both today and in this season? What is it that you believe about him? Will align your life with what you know about him what he said about himself, how he's acted in history, that's godliness. But that might feel daunting to you. You're like, how, how can this be? How can this be for someone like me? Well, that's the third principle. Paul not only reminds us that if we wanna be a faithful presence, we need to know who we are, we need to know how to live, but third, we need to know why it's all possible. He makes it absolutely clear what he believes, why he believes, and why you should believe as well. In verse two and three, he says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, 
and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. What is this changed life all based upon? How can I be this faithful presence in a cultural storm? Like it sounds so daunting, it sounds so overwhelming, but friends, it is all possible because of who God is. It is all based on the trustworthiness of God. And here in, in these opening verses, there are three attributes about God that I want to highlight because they serve as the fuel for your growth. The first is that he's a God who has promised. He's a God who makes promises. He's the God of covenant, to use Bible language, a binding agreement. God declares to us what his will is. He speaks to us. He reveals himself to us, and he makes these promises. All of our hope, all of our sense of, of identity and direction, they come from and are based upon the promises of God which existed before we ever came on the scene. What we believe in today all started many, many, many years ago in promises that God made when he created the world. This is why it's so good for us to soak in the scripture and to read our Bibles regularly because again and again, we were reminded of the great promises that God has made to redeem, to renew, and to restore. He's a God who makes a promise. But there's a second attribute here that's actually quite unique. When you read the letters of Paul, he doesn't often clarify this, but here in Titus, he does. And the second attribute is this. God does not lie. God will never lie. Isn't that interesting? That Paul feels the need to say that here. He says in verse two, in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie... Now, here's why it's important. And it's actually here, friends, that Paul begins his critique of chaotic Cretan culture. Say that fast out loud three times. <laughs> he does so by tapping into language and concepts that were actually familiar to the Cretan culture, ideas that dominated their narrative and storyline. Let me give you an example. Cretans regarded lying as culturally acceptable. It was culturally acceptable when you were in that culture to lie. Why? Because they worshiped these pagan gods. And the greatest god was Zeus. If you know anything about Zeus, Zeus was crazy. Zeus was a liar. And in their narrative, he often lied even for sexual relations. And so because they worshiped, you know, Zeus, they then lived like that. Like it was no problem to lie. Like, hey, I just lied to you. No problem. Why'd you lie? I'm a Cretan. <laughs> WWZD, like what would Zeus do? Well, he'd lie. <laughs> so totally, you can lie, I can lie, we're all lying, like whatever. So, hey, you, you, you can't discredit the Cretans for not being consistent. You know, they're like, well, I'm lying because Zeus lied. Like, hey, I'm just trying to be faithful. <laughs> or I'm lying. Just kidding. Or maybe I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> so here's Paul saying, okay, you guys worship a God 
who lies and manipulates. Like that is the cultural milieu in which these people lived. And so here comes Paul. He's saying, here's the God. He's the true and living God. And he is the God who does not lie. Think about how powerful that concept is to people who are born and raised in an environment to believe that their, their mythology was filled with gods and goddesses who were dangerous and who were unpredictable. You don't know that much about them. You don't know if they're going to bless you or not. Or if you don't do the right thing, you're going to get the reward of faithfulness or you're going to get punishment with, with chaos. And here Paul is saying, God made a promise. He's the initiator. And he is the God who does not lie. He will never lie to you. Which is just as powerful to us today as it was for these men and women back then. Because there are some of us the reason that we struggle with godliness and our commitment to Christ is because we're like, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's worth it. Like, is he really gonna come through? Paul's like, hey, God never lies. God never lies. He's the God who promises he will never lie. And the third attribute is he will bring it to pass. What he has promised, he will do it. At his appointed time, not yours. You notice that little detail there? Because listen, some of you feel like God's lied to you because it's based on a promise he never made. Some of us, we make up our own promises. We put them in God's mouth. Like, hey, God, I just felt that you were going to give me a new job by January 2023. That's what I felt. And you didn't do it. So you're a liar. I'm like, yeah, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> like, I, did God say that? <laughs> See, God will always break a promise he never made. <laughs> but he will never break a promise he actually made. He will bring it to pass in his time. In his time. And the word brought to light here is the gospel, the message that Paul's been commissioned to preach. Christianity is a revealed religion. God has broken in. And spoken and acted in time and in space. God can be known and experienced. This message of the gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness. Friends, us trying to live as a faithful presence isn't a matter of us like groping in the darkness, trying to discover something about God, wondering if he's going to come through on his promise. His word is not written on sand. It will not change. It is a solid rock, a sure foundation that you can build your life on so that when the storms and the rain and the wind come, and they will, they may beat on your house, but your house will never fall because you are built on the rock of Jesus Christ. He is the God who makes promises. He is a God who will never lie. And he is the God who will bring it to pass. To put it simply, friends, the good news that you carry is the good news that carries you. Isn't that one of the beautiful things about Christianity? The good news that you carry, that you get to tell people, hey, Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. He rose again, is the same news that carries you. When you're feeling low, when you're feeling discouraged, when you're feeling you know, abandoned, the good news carries you. You remember like, oh, what Christ has done for me. And if I'm in a moment of doubt, I need to go to God's word and be reminded of all that God has done. He's never been unfaithful to a single human being in all of human history, and you're not gonna be the first. Some of you are like, well, I think I am. I think I'm a good candidate for the first one. I'm like, no, it's not gonna happen, friends. Not gonna happen. And so as an encouragement, Paul concludes with two central blessings 
that the gospel brings. Grace and peace in verse four. He says to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace. The very foundation upon which a faithful life can be realized. The grace of God, his unmerited favor. We need to be reminded that it is by grace we are saved. By grace I am rescued from sin. By grace I cease my striving. By grace I am enabled to grow and to have a godly witness. Listen, godliness does not bring grace. Grace brings godliness. It's not like you need to get your act together and then show yourself presentable to God. Like, hey, am I looking pretty godly? He's like, yeah, it's pretty godly, like a 6.5 out of 10, so I'll give you some grace. It's not godliness that leads to grace. It's grace that leads to godliness. It's knowing that you're saved, knowing that you're loved by God, that then produces godly character in your life by grace and peace, the reconciliation that he brings, peace with God, knowing that you are forgiven, united with him, adopted as a child so that you can experience the peace of God in this crazy world. These words are not empty, but they are full of meaning and they are alive with hope and they're also incredibly countercultural because this grace and peace, they come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Remember, Paul just referred in the previous verse to God our Savior. And now in the next verse, he refers to Jesus Christ as a Savior. This is radical because Paul is writing into a culture where the Greeks thought Zeus was their Savior. And Paul's like, nope, it's Jesus. And then the Judaizers thought, well, the law would be their saviors. And he says, nope, Jesus is the savior. And then there were the Romans who thought Caesar was the savior. And they're like, nope, Jesus is the savior. See how punk rock Paul is right now? He's like, whatever saviors you think are out there, they are not it. Jesus Christ is our savior. And so in the midst of this storm, Paul undercuts every belief system and says, Jesus is our savior who saves us from the ultimate chaos of sin and death. Because the one storm that you should ultimately fear is the storm of sin and eternal separation from God. The very storm that Jesus came and stepped into when he went on the cross to die for you and to die for me. Though he never sinned, he died for ours and thus freed us from that penalty, freed us from that horrible eternity so that we could be brought near to him and commissioned by him to do his work in the world and to be with him forever and ever in glory. Friends, that's how you and I can become a faithful presence in this cultural moment. The relationship that you and I need, the status that we need, the power that we need, the authority that we need comes to us by grace in Jesus Christ. And if you have his peace, you can weather any storm that comes your way in this life because you can know that he is with you. Christ is our captain. Scripture is our compass. The Holy Spirit He's the wind in our sails. The question for you and I is where Paul began. Do you belong to God? And are you living 
in his service. I pray that these matters would be settled for us all, even today. That's how he will make us a present, faithful witness. Let's pray together that that would be true. Father, I pray first for those here who do not yet know you or those who are joining us online. I pray that this matter of their salvation would be settled today. Wherever they are looking for a savior, I pray that they would know they will never find it for they only have a savior in Jesus Christ who lived the life they should have lived and died the death they should have died. I pray that right now from their heart, we all pray that right now from their heart, they would believe and say, Jesus, save me. You are my savior. I am not the savior. You are my savior. And that they would know forgiveness and adoption and acceptance. And Father, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would be those men and women who say we are here, we are in your service because we are your children, because we have been saved. God, as our hearts prepare now to respond to you in this time of our service, I pray that we would remember who we are in Christ. For those who have forgotten, God, would you remind them. For those who feel overwhelmed by the storm, remind them that you are with them. For those who lack guidance or direction, remind them of the power of your word and your Holy Spirit. Just as Paul wrote to Titus, a son in the faith, you write and speak to us as your sons and daughters in Christ. And I just pray, God, that from that that new identity we have in Jesus, that we then be able to see that all of this is possible. It is possible. For those who are struggling with addiction or they just feel like, nope, this could never be true for you. You can't do any of that. You can't be godly. Those are all lies. This is all possible in Jesus Christ because of who we are in Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, would you remind us of who we truly are? Not what the world says we are. Not what our flesh says we are, but who you have declared us to be in Jesus Christ and that that would change everything about how we live in this world. So Spirit of God, would you move now? We ask in Jesus' name.